says, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, he brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her, she gave him her hand, and he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And Father, we humbly ask as we take this time now to open the word of God as an act of worship toward you as we've prayed and sang and fellowshiped and done other things lord we want this time to continue now in worship as we open the word of god as an act of submission to your authority and believing that your word speaks to us by the power of your holy spirit who wrote it so we ask prepare us lord give us a heart that's receptive and we pray that you would speak to us what you want us to hear from your heart this morning in this passage of scripture. And we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, as the church, it is important for us to stay certainly deeply rooted in the scripture. I think anytime a church deviates from the word of God, they do a great disservice to what God's plan is for the church. But Just as important as it is to be deeply rooted in the scripture, it is also equally important to be open to the power of the Lord working among us. You know, so important that we never forget, especially as a church who loves and esteems highly the word of God, that the Trinity is not the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the power of the Lord who wrote the Word of God, but also is the one who is seeking to work powerfully among the body of Christ. Well, in this next snapshot we get here of the early church, we clearly see in our text the Lord's miraculous power to heal, to restore life, to save souls. The background, remember, Saul of Tarsus, who was this main persecutor, leading the charge of persecution against the early church has been radically saved and changed by the Lord. Jesus transformed Saul's life. He's now a follower of the Lord. 
And as a result of that, that persecution that arose against the church, we saw back in Acts chapter 8, this great persecution arose. Remember, during that time, it says that many believers were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and the northern parts of Israel away from the church in Jerusalem. And now that Saul is saved, it seems the time of persecution has kind of subsided a little bit, but many believers have been scattered all throughout the land of Israel to different territories. Verse 31, which we concluded with last week, gave to us sort of a a summary statement of the, 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 the progress, the development of the church. It's almost like it was a little progress report. We get these periodically in the book of Acts of how the work of the Lord was flourishing. That's why we read in verse 31, as we concluded last time, that the church is plural all throughout Judea. That's the southern part of Israel. Galilee, that's the northern region. Samaria, that's the central region that all these churches had peace and were edified and they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. So many churches have now been planted all throughout Israel at this time. They're doing well. The Spirit of the Lord is powerfully at work among them. They're being blessed by God to which verse 32 in our text then picks up telling us now it came to pass as Peter then went throughout all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So Peter, the apostle Peter, who was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, as we've seen before in the book of Acts, seemed to now once again go out to visit these various congregations, no doubt to encourage them in the things of the Lord, to minister to them, to teach the word of God, to do what he could to strengthen these different churches. And as he's on this circuit, as he's traveling around, the Holy Spirit gives to us here in our text this morning a few more snapshots of some of the things that were happening in these different locations where Peter was going around visiting assemblies who were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one powerful event that happens that we're going to read about here in verse 32 was it says when, when Peter went down and visited the saints who were there in the area of Lydda. Now, Lydda is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's the modern area today called Lod, and there apparently was a congregation that got established there of believers and followers of Jesus who were worshiping the Lord and assembling. What's interesting in verse 32, if you take note with me, the term that was used there to describe the followers of Jesus It says there in verse 32 that these followers of Jesus, they're referred to by the title, take note of that word, the end of the verse, saints. Now we've seen thus far in the book of Acts already multiple different titles and terms that were used to describe followers of Jesus. We've seen disciples, we've read they were people of the way, and and there are different terms that are used as titles for those who are the Lord's servants. One of the more commonly used terms, in fact, through the entirety of the New Testament, is this term we find here, the term saints. And that word saints, basically in the language itself, literally just means holy ones. It's a Greek term that speaks of those who have been separated unto holiness or separated for righteousness. It is a biblical reference to those people who have been made righteous or made holy in their positional standing before God 
as the result of their relationship with Jesus Christ. That because they are now joined with Christ by faith, they have now been made holy and righteous as the result of believing upon Jesus as their Savior. Sort of like a spiritual marriage. That when a man marries a woman and they enter into that union and relationship, she takes his identity and and her identity becomes his identity. And and all of a sudden, or his identity becomes her identity. I guess I'm saying that backwards. She takes his name and, and she has a new status and all that is his now becomes hers. Well, the same with a relationship with Jesus. It's like a spiritual marriage. That when a person enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior, in the same way, we take the identity of Jesus. And thank goodness for that. That when we stand before God, we don't stand before God in our own sinful, guilty identity. We stand before God in Christ. We now have the identity of Jesus. God gives to us the righteousness of Of Jesus. He gives us into our spiritual account all of the holiness and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that when God looks upon our lives, He doesn't see us in our sinful identity as failures and guilty people on the earth. He sees us under the blood and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And he looks upon us in that way, positionally before God, by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are seen as righteous, seen as holy ones. We're set apart spiritually. That's the idea. We're made saints via our salvation with Christ. Now, that's interesting to take in consideration because biblically, and let me say that word again, biblically, a saint is not someone who is a religious superhero who has gained or attained some superior spiritual status and therefore they become a saint now. Biblically, a saint is any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's put their faith in Jesus and received his salvation. So this morning, welcome to St. Anthony. (laughs) Fits well, right? St. Anthony. St. Bob, St. John, St. Sally, St. You know, Mary, whatever we are, if we are trusting in Christ, biblically, the Bible says that is our status, that from God's perspective, he sees us holy and righteous, and often the greetings in the New Testament letters refer to Christians in that way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all and every place that call in the name of Christ. When he wrote to the Ephesian church, he says to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, same thing again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. If we are in a relationship with Christ, we are considered saints, holy ones, righteous. What a wonderful thing. Our performance may not always be holy, Our practice may not always be righteous. Hopefully we're growing, but our position is that we're righteous in God's sight. So you can go to God, even in the midst of your failures and weakness, and God receives you because of the righteousness that you have from Jesus, that you can approach him with that reality. Well, Peter now arrives to visit these saints who are there in Lydda. Our text goes on to tell us in verse 33 that there in Lydda, he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter, imagine this, said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed 
And then he arose immediately at that point. Now, so often we just read the Bible and we become numb to it. Don't miss what's going on there. Peter arrives to this group of believers in Lydda and while he's visiting there, he comes into contact with a man struggling with, it's fair to say, a helpless condition, a completely helpless condition. And yet in that condition, the Lord decides to miraculously heal this man and the power of the Lord is interjected into his life and his life's changed. I mean, look what it tells us of the man there in verse 33. It considers condition. It says Aeneas had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Now, the fact that it tells us he's been bedridden and paralyzed for eight years indicates his paralysis was not a condition from birth. In other words, this was something that happened as he suffered a loss at some point eight years ago in his life. He wasn't born in a paralyzed condition. He became paralyzed. Maybe again, was it a bad accident that happened? Maybe just some unfortunate tragic accident? Or was it something maybe he made some poor choices and an accident happened in his life and he was in some ways a fault and lost and, and came into a paralyzed condition? Was it a stroke? Was it a, a, a disease or a health condition? Regardless of how he became paralyzed, he's someone who lost freedom in his life that he once possessed. For a time, he lived as a normal individual, but then something happened that radically changed his life for the worse physically, and now he finds himself in a condition where he's lost the capacity to do things that he once was able to do before. He's lost certain freedoms and independence. He must now live a restricted life in a modified existence dependent upon others for his help and for his care. He finds himself wrestling with these things. He's lost his independence. It's been stripped from him. And he has to humbly live dependent upon other people to assist him and to take care of him now. Now, look, let's be realistic. That's not only hard to adjust to physically, if somebody goes through that type of experience, that's also very difficult mentally and emotionally to have lost something like that in your life and to become bedridden and paralyzed. Imagine the struggles for this man. For the last eight years, he's wrestled with something that was stripped away from him that he's lost, however it was lost, and he's now paralyzed and bedridden, and he's been like that as the result of this loss. You know, perhaps this morning, in some way, maybe you can relate to Aeneas. Maybe some health condition or situation or major loss has happened in your life that's left you in a way where now you find yourself struggling physically because of some loss due to a health situation or something that's happened in your body physically. And on top of the physical struggle, there's the mental wrestling and the emotional struggles and the anguish of, of having to now cope with life much different than it was at one point before. Or maybe just in some way you can relate because maybe you've just endured some loss in your personal life that's kind of left you paralyzed the past few years. And maybe for years, you've kind of just been in a state of paralysis to some degree because of some major loss that came into your life. Well, Aeneas spent eight years suffering like this, and he had absolutely no idea that change was even possible, let alone right on the horizon. He had no idea that day 
that this condition he had been in for eight years, struggling, suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, that change was possible. And not only that, it was right on the horizon later that day for him. And yet the power of the Lord intervenes. Peter being prompted by the Lord's spirit says to him when he sees him in verse 34, Aeneas, imagine the shock, Jesus the Christ heals you. He says, arise and make your bed. And it says he arose immediately. So instantly this man's paralyzed condition is healed. It's resolved. And he instantaneously is able to get up and begin to walk around. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us one aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit operating among the church is that even as Jesus himself healed people in the days of his ministry, that at times now that the Spirit would give gifts of healings that would be distributed at times through the Lord's people, distributed on occasion, that if and when the Spirit of the Lord, who is now operating among the church, the people of the Lord, now that Jesus is back into heaven, that the same Spirit of the Lord, now operating through the church and his followers, that at times, through the Lord's servants, there would be, on occasions, gifts of certain healings that would be distributed at times, if and when the Spirit of the Lord determines that's in alignment with the purposes of God, like a gift given out to certain people that on occasion the Spirit of the Lord would distribute gifts of healings at different times among the Lord's people in accordance with his purposes. Now, apparently the Lord determines that in this situation there in Lydda with this particular man, that it was in alignment with the purposes of the Lord for him to experience a miraculous healing in his life. Peter becoming aware of this as the Lord's servant is stirred in faith and announces this healing and brings it to pass by saying, Jesus the Christ heals you, arise. Now take notice there, even in Peter's statement in verse 34, Peter makes it very evident who's the one behind the healing. He doesn't say, I heal you in the name of the Lord, Shazam, and then there's going to whip my jacket around and everybody on the stage will get excited what I just did. He says, Jesus wants to heal you. Jesus is healing you. He wants to make it very clear. This was Jesus. It was the decision and power of the Lord that even as Jesus healed when he was alive in a body of flesh, He's just as much alive today, and if he chooses to heal someone like he did when he was on this earth, he's able to do that. And so Peter wants to make it very sure that it's understood, I believe, that he did not possess in himself some power, like a spiritual superhero who has a special power, to be able to just heal people whenever he wanted to. Peter wanted to make it very evident. This was a decision of the Lord. He's giving out today one of his gifts of healings and Peter saying, I'm just the delivery man. I'm just the one announcing it and the one who he's using as the delivery man. And here we see, according again to 1 Corinthians 12, a few other gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. One clearly is the gift of the working of miracles. And the gift of the working of miracles is a spiritual gift whereby at time the power of God's spirit will work in such a way to override the natural laws of nature in such a way whereby God supersedes 
what is humanly and naturally possible and does the impossible and brings it about. The other gift of the Holy Spirit that's an operation through Peter's life here is what we call 1 Corinthians 12 describes the gift of faith. And the gift of faith is not a person who just has a whole lot of faith. The gift of faith is a supernatural spiritual infusion of divine confidence that comes into a person's heart in a given moment or situation to believe God for something incredible. And to therefore act in such a way whereby they have strong confidence from a divine infusion by the Spirit of God to believe that God can do something like raise a paralyzed man and heal him. And this is what we see Peter operating here. His heart is stirred by the Spirit with a supernatural measure of faith in the moment, which causes Peter to have such confidence that the Lord is actually able to do this. I mean, think about it. How else do you look at a man who's in a pitiful condition of being paralyzed for eight years and bedridden and have the confidence to say to him, if it ain't going to work, Jesus right now is healing you. Get up and make your bed because you are never going back to that condition again. Certainly, there must have been a supernatural infusion of faith put into Peter's heart in that moment. And this is how the gift of faith operates. There may be a time when the Lord will give a supernatural measure of strong confidence and faith to believe him for something that seems unbelievable. And when that gift is in operation, the servant of the Lord trusts God to do incredible things and he declares this total life change. And what's even crazier, it happens. I mean, do you see what verse 34 says there? It says he arose, it doesn't say after physical therapy. It says he arose immediately. Instantaneous life change. Talk about the power of automatic change that can come when the Lord's power intervenes. You know, these accounts in the New Testament, whether the Gospels or the book of Acts, no doubt are here to remind us of the power of our Lord that no matter what has happened to any person, no matter what's been damaged, no matter what a person's current condition, that the Lord Jesus is always able, if he so chooses, to powerfully heal in somebody's life, to restore what has been lost. And Jesus, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know what is the Lord's people? I know we see a lot of things maybe that may seem questionable, but God help us not to fly to the other extreme and stop being open and believing that we have a powerful Lord who's a miracle-working God that at times may desire in his grace and love to help. Look, I don't understand why some people do experience on this earth physical healing and why many others don't experience physical healing. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't misjudge the reasonings. Look, God's ways are higher than our ways and higher than our understanding. And God's going to do what he deems best to do in each situation. And any believer ultimately in Christ is going to be healed ultimately anyway when they get a new body in heaven. And the Lord may choose at times to heal and do a mighty work, but he does all he does for his good and his purposes. In fact, look what happens, verse 35, here in Lydda. It says, so all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon, the community nearby, they saw this man who had been healed. And what does it say happened? They turned to the Lord. 
So as this particular man experiences this healing, the evidence of the power of the Lord to change his life, what does it do? It stirs faith in the hearts of many people, it says in the communities, to turn to the Lord in salvation. Many witnessed the transformation and then they ended up getting saved as a result. They ended up turning to Jesus themselves as Savior and Lord. Seeing his life impacted in the way it was by the Lord stirred their hearts with a desire to want to know the Lord themselves, to receive what Jesus could do in their life. Jesus kindly heals one man, shows his power, and you want to talk about getting a good return on your investment? That's what the Lord did. He, he invests in one man, heals one man, and he got a really good return on his investment because it says, as the result, many turned to the Lord. Jesus is a good steward. The whole region experiences an awakening and many converts. Notice the phrasing the Bible uses there to describe spiritual conversion or salvation. It says that they turn to the Lord. They turn to the Lord. You know, the idea there of turning implies when you turn your vehicle or you take a turn when you're walking, it implies changing direction. It's making a conscious decision to change the way you're going and to go a different direction. And that's used to depict and describe conversion or spiritual salvation with Jesus. The idea is those people in that day, they were turning away from a life that was self-governed, where they were doing what they wanted, living for sin, turning away from sin, turning away from their way of life and how they were doing things and what they were pursuing after, turning away from rebelling against God and his word and God's will. And instead, they changed directions. They turned away from those things and they turned to the Lord. And they turned to following the Lord and living for the Lord and serving Jesus instead and receiving. It speaks of making a spiritual decision. And why is that important and that phrase important? They turn to the Lord because it reminds us biblically that people do not start out life from birth following or living for the Lord. They don't. The Bible says that we all like sheep have gone astray. At some point, there must come a definite day when a person makes an individual decision for themselves to turn to the Lord. We're not already on the highway to heaven. We're not already following the Lord, even if we're being raised in the Lord. Look, a wonderful thing. If you're being raised in the Lord or you were raised in the Lord by parents who knew Jesus, that's wonderful. But just because you're being forced to come to church and forced to honor certain, certain moral or spiritual standards in your home because it's in our house, we're gonna, it doesn't mean you're following the Lord. It doesn't mean you are following. You need to choose at some point to turn to the Lord for yourself. To choose to follow Jesus, to make that definite day of decision. Considering the hardness of a human heart, let me just say, that's the greatest miracle that could ever happen. That's a bigger miracle than a paralyzed man getting up off of his bed because the human heart is hard and the greatest miracle is the salvation of a soul. Well, look at the next miracle that happened. Verse 36 goes on to say, and at Joppa, another area, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Let's get over the name. doesn't mean what it does nowadays, okay? <laughs> this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and she died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room 
And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. So they sent two men imploring Peter to come and not to delay in coming to them. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So the scene here shifts another 10 to 15 miles away now from Joppa northwest to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to what's called the seaport of Joppa. And apparently there's another church there, another assembly of believers, and a real dilemma arose among this church. A vital servant of the Lord who did much good work among them gets sick and she ends up dying. We're introduced to this female disciple of the Lord named Tabitha. It tells us as well there in verse 36 that her Greek translation of that Jewish name Tabitha was Dorcas, and that word means literally gazelle, graceful doe or gazelle. And it was a beautiful fitting term because indeed this woman had a wonderful reputation for being very gracious and kind and generous and someone who was quick to help and bless other people. Her life, it says there, was the practice of doing many what? It says good works, verse 36, and charitable deeds. Her life was characterized by doing lots of good works and charitable deeds. One translation renders that she was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. Tabitha operated in the gift of what the Bible calls the gift of helps, which is basically a spiritual gift that describes those who just have an inclination for practical servanthood and just, let me put it this way, helping people out, lending a helping hand, doing something practical to just assist and serve others, practical needs. It says she cared for the needs of the vulnerable widows by making tunics and garments for people. In other words, she was a gifted seamstress and she was someone who was very gracious and generous, maybe even donating the materials and the cloth. And some people understand in that culture, this was a, a vital need for them. Many in that day and age, I know it's hard to reconcile in our minds today, they only had one garment to wear. You, you were doing well if you had a second garment to wear. And so when you only had one garment, if your garment was wearing out or falling apart and you didn't have money to you know, get a new garment or something like that, in this situation, this was a vital need for them. And so Tabitha, as a gifted seamstress, was using her abilities to help people out, to fix their garments or, or make new garments, make new tunics for people to wear helping those who were less fortunate, the widows and those who were struggling, those who couldn't afford clothes, she was supplying clothes for them. And just in a gracious, generous way with the charitable heart she had, verse 39 says that uh, they're seeing the widows that were there weeping as Peter arrives. It says all the people there are, are just weeping because this woman was so known for the ways that she had helped them. And so as Peter arrives, he comes to realize, wow, they really appreciate this woman. I mean, here they are grieving over her dead body because they are so saddened by all the help she had provided, showing the tunics and the garments which she had made for them while she was with them. And she was just greatly appreciated because of her good works and her practical assistance that she provided in people's lives. 
Look, may we never forget, some people don't need a Bible study. Maybe they just need a helping hand. Maybe they're just a widow that lives up the street from me and what they need is somebody to go shovel their snow when it snows or to go mow their lawn because they're not able to mow their lawn anymore and it costs a lot to hire a lawn service. Maybe they're just somebody who needs assistance at some point because they're having trouble buying school clothes for their kids or they need a little hand doing a repair job so they don't have to spend $500 to bring somebody that's a professional in and maybe they just don't have the money to do that. And maybe you have a gifting and in a practical way you can help. Look, there are so many ways that we can be gracious and charitable and helpful. And I love this here. She was just somebody known for good works. She wasn't preaching sermons. She wasn't known as the prophetess in the church. Let us never underestimate the value of good works and charitable deeds as Christians. Look, I understand we are not in any way earning our salvation through good works. The Bible's clear on that. But the Bible also is clear that good works are one of the biblical revelations that we have been saved. We're not saved by works, but the Bible says one of the ways you should be able to tell that you're saved is you begin to live a life of good works differently. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice Jesus took into, uh, in a sense, consideration, you're going to be doing works if you're following me. And Jesus said, let your light shine in that way, that people would see your good works and glorify your Father. Wow, these people that are followers of Jesus, wow, maybe I need to know about this God. This guy came over and did this practical, and he didn't charge me anything. Who's this God that he serves? It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The same chapter that says we're not saved by good works says that we were saved, listen, for good works. Not saved by works, but saved Four good works, which God's prepared before to do, which means God has special good works that he's prepared in his mind thinking, oh, when I save him, there are some really good works that I can do through his life to bless a whole lot of people and be a good testimony for Christ. When I save her, the wonderful thing is there are going to be days and times and situations where she can step in and do good works in practical ways and people are going to come to know me because she's going to do good works as my representative and servant. You know, Titus tells us in his writing as well, Titus 3, let us learn to maintain good works and meet urgent needs. How the body of Christ, folks, does not necessarily need lots more teachers and preachers. And most people, honestly, are not going to be gifted and anointed by the Spirit to, let's say, preach or teach or sing or stand on a platform. But most people under the Spirit's inspiration can do good works, can do practical things with a servant heart and the love of Christ that should be compelling us to be able to just be helpful and do charitable things and serve practically. Again, whether that's just being generous with our resources or helping people through practical labors in different ways, we read regarding this valuable servant of the Lord Tabitha there in verse 37 that when she became sick, she ultimately died and then they washed her body and laid her in an upper room. Now, culturally, when someone died in that hot Mideastern culture, they buried them the same day. 
for, for just practical reasons. But here, look what happens. This valuable servant of the Lord, illness strikes Tabitha's life. She ultimately dies, it seems kind of prematurely before it was expected. And as the result of that, culturally, they would have buried her the same day. But notice what happens. Verse 37 says, they wash her body kindly, but they don't cover it with the normal burial spices. Typically, they would then put burial spices over the washed body, honestly, to kind of subdue the odors and put you in a tomb area where people could briefly visit you before they closed off the tomb. They wash her body. They don't put the burial spices on. They don't put her in a tomb. It says they just wash her body and they put her in the upper room. Well, the upper room was usually where you met for meals. That's a little peculiar. That's a little unusual. So they're doing something very unusual here. Verse 38 says they then sent to Lydda, which was nearby Joppa, because they had heard that Peter was there. So they sent two men over imploring Peter not to delay in coming to them. So keep in mind, they know that she's not just ill still. They know that she's dead. She's died. So first of all, why are they sending for Peter? They're not sending for Peter to come and help her get better from her sickness. They know that she's died. They're sending to Peter here at this point. And notice, why are they begging him not to delay? Well, it appears that though this woman, again, she's not an apostle, She's not a pastor. She's not a leader. This woman was so valuable in the church simply due to her practical deeds and her charitable work and her good works that she did that they are exercising faith as a group of believers that if perhaps if they send for Peter, he can come and pray for her and maybe the Lord will raise her back from the dead and give her back to us because she's vital in the church. And we need her to continue and carry on this ministry. They want to see Tabitha's life restored. And clearly, that's what's implied in the storyline here, that they are believing that maybe the Lord will raise her back to life and be merciful to them. Now, keep in mind, up to this point, there have been healings in the church. We just saw one in our last verses. But nobody in the early church at this point has been raised back from the dead. Nobody's been raised back to life since the days of Jesus when he raised Lazarus or Jairus' daughter. Nonetheless, Peter, as he's called for, he compassionately comes. And I have to wonder if Peter himself is thinking, why are they asking me to come? I mean, the Lord used me to heal people, but she's dead. She's died. What could I possibly do? But Peter comes as he's on the way. It says, verse 39, when he shows up, he goes up into the upper room and look what he sees. All the widows weeping and they're showing him the tunics and the garments which she made for them while she was alive. I can just see them. They start showing Peter all the garments and things she made. And they're telling him stories. Peter, we didn't even have clothes for our kids. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And Tabitha shows up one day and says, let me, let me measure the kids for you. And she goes away. And a few days later, she comes back and she's made them all new garments. Peter, look the stuff that she did. She never asked for a penny. She just did this to be kind. And she would put her sweat and her love and her labor in. And you're telling these stories. Again, amazing how much value and appreciation they had for her. And she just did good works. Practical deeds to show kindness, to be helpful, and do things to relieve people's burdens and struggles. This reminds us, look, of the powerful demonstration of love, practical servanthood. 
like Jesus, John 13, washing people's feet, just doing simple things to bless people, to serve people, offering a lending hand. That kind of stuff is very, very impacting, obvious. Look how impacting it was. Well, verse 40 says, as Peter's now called for, look what happens. The Lord's really going to demonstrate his power now. Peter put them all out and he knelt down and he prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter gave her his hand and lifted her up and then he called in the saints and the widows and he presented her alive. So after some time of weeping and the stories being shared, it says another incredible miracle beyond the first one we read just comes to pass now. Because here in this scene, here is a clinically dead woman who is now raised back from the realm of the dead. She comes back to life. Consider again what literally happened there. I mean, that's phenomenal. The mind-blowing experience that just took place. Notice a few things in connection to this miracle that Peter does as this woman's raised from the dead under his ministry as the Lord used them. Notice, first of all, verse 40 there, it says, Peter, look at it, it says, he put them all out. He put everybody out of the room. That's important to take note of there, that the whole event of the Lord's healing here it was quite private, if you would. It was not a flashy show. Peter didn't say, could you go get the community, charge them nine ninety five, get me a stage. There was none of this. It was actually quite private. He actually put people out before he was open to the Lord doing this powerful miracle. He wasn't seeking a stage for his ministry or lots of people as an audience to witness it. And let me just say... It's very interesting today that it seems that it's quite the opposite in the body of Christ of those who are supposedly doing healings for the Lord today. The Bible doesn't seem to know anything of that. Here there's a healing of the Lord. There's no stage. There's no big fanfare. It's just the power of God mercifully being shown. Peter was also fully dependent upon the Lord because look what he does. It says he humbly seeks the Lord. In fact, it says he knelt down and he prayed. He submitted himself to the throne of God, to the authority of Jesus on the throne to inquire. This was a major dilemma. This was something only the Lord could do. This woman's life had vanished. And again, I have to wonder, I mean, what did Peter pray? What do you pray in a situation like that? I wonder, was he reflecting upon what he was included in? Mark chapter 5 tells us, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And it says when Jesus raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead, one of his few resurrection miracles, it says that Jesus put everybody out of the room except for the parents and Peter, James, and John. And then he performed this miracle and he spoke to that young girl saying, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked. I have to wonder when Peter was there, did he get down on his knees and he start to pray and say, Lord, do you want to do that again? Lord, I saw you do that. I was with you, Lord. Do you want to do that for this woman and for these people? Do you want to restore this woman's ministry so she can continue to do these things? Lord, we know you have the power to do it. We're asking you show yourself strong and he just humbly prays dependently. Let me ask this morning, when was the last time, and maybe now, you're, you were facing a major dilemma? That it was like that impossible. And can I ask, what did you do? 
Did you work harder? Did you complain to everybody about the dilemma? Or did you get on your knees and pray? And humble yourself before the Lord. Look, it's not the position of our body. It's ultimately the position of our heart. But I'll tell you this. There's something really good at times for our heart to get down on our knees and to seek the throne of the Lord and ask him to move in a mighty way. Would do many of us good perhaps to do that more frequently. The Bible tells us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous, prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, as Christians, sad to say, and again, from a pastoral perspective, I just tend to be in the mix of these things more often, just talking to people and listening. And it's amazing. You know, we'll share our dilemmas, share our problems, and this is going on. And sometimes it's some pretty major stuff. Major things, major needs. But yet, how do we address those things? We'll talk about them, we'll work harder, we'll strive, we'll try and fix it in the flesh. But when do we humbly get on our knees and beg God, the throne of heaven, Lord, you have to do something miraculous or nothing's ever going to change. Nothing's ever going to happen. And here, I love this. Peter senses in faith that the Lord wants to move. Again, that gift of faith within him. In verse 40, it says, he turns to this woman's dead body and says, arise. And she opened her eyes and saw Peter and sat up and he gives her his hand and lifts her up at that moment. So Peter here, almost as if the Lord is working through his body now humanly, turns to her and he says to her, arise in the name of Jesus And she opens her eyes, she sits up, and I imagine Peter probably said something like, wow, glad to have you back. And I imagine she might have responded, wish I could say the same. (laughs) I was just in glory. Thanks, Peter. (laughs) Good for them, bad for me. But the Lord does this incredible miracle. And then again, Peter presents her back from the dead, alive to all the people who were there. And look what happens again, verse 42 the closure of this story. And it came known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. Another, another awesome miracle demonstrating the power of the Lord. Many become aware and what happens? People start getting saved again. Another demonstration. Jesus uses his miraculous display of power to win over people's hearts. He heals one person and he brings ultimate healing, eternal spiritual healing to the souls of many people who turn now and believe upon Jesus as many believed on the Lord. And all the displays of the Lord's power on earth, I tell you this, his ultimate goal certainly is to heal people's hearts, is to reach people's hearts and miraculously change sinful hearts, doing whatever it takes. I'm confident Jesus will do whatever it takes to win people's hearts over, to soften their hearts. And whether it's doing practical works, of somebody just showing the love of Jesus to just show up and to be present, to help out in a tough time or do something to relieve a burden, or whether it is raising a paralyzed man out of his bed or bringing somebody back from the dead, Jesus will do whatever he can to win people's hearts, 
to bring people to the place where they will put their confidence in him and believe upon him. You know, the Bible tells us that when someone does not believe, 2 Corinthians says, when they don't believe, that they're, they're spiritually blinded. But it says, when someone turns to the Lord, believing upon the Lord, the veil is taken away. And salvation comes. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the good message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of what Jesus did for us and offers to us, that that message alone offers the power of God for salvation to those who believe. See, the message of salvation, the power of God to be saved is in the gospel message, but the power of God to be saved doesn't come until someone believes. It's when a person believes it for themselves and, and exercises their faith, then the power of God comes into their soul to save them. This is what we want to see. Many people turn to the Lord, believe upon the Lord. And so whether it's through practical good works or the preaching of the gospel or the power of the Lord in miracles, what we want to see is the Lord powerfully turn hearts towards him, that people would come to know him. Would you stand together with me and pray?